Hi, I'm Kara Swisher. I'm Peter Kafka. And thanks for listening to Recode Replay. This is one of the sessions from our 2017 Code Conference. We're going to let you hear it in just a second for free. You're welcome. But before we do that, we want to plug another conference. Okay, fine, if you insist. I must, I must. You must Um, insist. If you like this event, there's a very good chance you're going to like Code Media 2018. February 12th and 13th in Huntington Beach, California. 2018. I can't believe it's next year. Next year. Absolutely. Save the date. Peter and I will both be there, which means it's going to be a fantastic event. I've been to all of them and I have learned things. I would actually pay for them, Peter. We may charge you this year. Uh, One more time. That's Code Media 2018. It's like this event, but it's in 2018. February 12th and 13th. Go to events.recode.net for all the deets, as the kids say. As the kids say. Thanks, Peter. See ya. Okay, so this is the last interview, and it's my last interview, and I'm so happy that it's Steve Case, who um, was brave enough and kind enough to come to our very first uh, conference and do a terrific job, as he often does. Not always, but mostly. So here's Steve Case. What do you mean often, but... I mean what I say. Ooh. You know. So you're leaving. I should interview you, but Dick already That's did. already, yeah, that, that role's already been filled. So, um, I've known you a long time. Uh, I think everybody knows that you uh, are, are the guy who uh, 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 ran AOL and got... America Online, literally, I mean, uh, and then transitioned over to the web. But now you're doing something different. Uh, You're doing this thing called Rise of the Rest, which I personally find fascinating. I think it ties into some of the other themes that uh, have been talked about here with the displacement of workers or the the issue of, you know, inequality, income inequality. There's lots of wealth and Lots of jobs in Silicon Valley, not so much in some right. other places. Talk about it. What is it? Sure. Well, first of all, it is great to be here, and thank you for asking me. Having been one of your first interviewees in the first conference to be your last uh, interviewee, I'm delighted to be here, honored to be here, and congratulations to you and, and Kara on what's been obviously a, a, a great uh, event and a great uh, kind of uh, track record over really nearly two decades. Uh, and before I answer the rise of rest question, you know, just hearing some of the discussions over the last you know, couple of days, it is a reminder of how far we've come in that first wave of the Internet. When we got started in 1985, only 3% of people were online, and they were online one hour a week. Uh, and we took, spent a decade trying to explain to people why the Internet mattered and they should care about it. And, of course, now it's a central part of everyday life. So that whole journey of trying to make, get America online, make the Internet uh, kind of central, uh, uh, it's great to see the progress that has been made and the opportunities, particularly in this third wave around education and um, health care and food and agriculture, a bunch of sectors that haven't really changed that much but will. But in terms of the rise of the rest, it's, it's, it's a big opportunity, uh, and I think it's increasingly a, a necessity. That right now, most of the venture capital, 75% last year, uh, goes to three states, California, New York, Massachusetts, 75%. So 47 states you know, fight over 25%. If you look at this last election, and part of the reason 
you know, Donald Trump is President Trump, is a, a sense out there that a lot of people feel left out and left behind. If you look at the states that he won versus you know, Hillary Clinton won, uh, the states that she won, 85% of venture capital went to. The states he won, 30 states in aggregate, 15% of venture capital you know, went to. So this idea of people feeling kind of left out and left behind, it's because they kind of have been left out and left behind. If we're funding innovative, disruptive entrepreneurs in a few places that are, in some cases, destroying jobs in other places, but not at least partially offsetting that by funding entrepreneurs in those places, you are going to have more and more of this you know, divide, more and more of this chasm, and it's going to impact our, our country in an unhelpful way. So that is one point. But there's two other points. That's more dealing with a potential problem. There's two other reasons to, I think, focus on the rise of the rest that is more around kind of seizing an opportunity. One is in this third way, right? some of the sectors I mentioned, uh, I think partnerships are more important, domain expertise is more important, it's not just about the software, it's not just about dropping an app in an app store, if you want to really revolutionize you know, health, you kind of have to work with doctors, you kind of have to work with hospitals, you kind of have to work with health plans, you kind of have to work with, with the government because of the regulations associated with that, and having domain expertise, which was not that important in the second wave, is going to become more important. Most of the, 75% of the Fortune 500 companies, and many of the leaders in healthcare are in the middle of the country. So being closer to them will become more important and ecosystems are starting to build around you know, some of those you know, cities that are, are, are quite, quite interesting. We could talk about you know, some of the cities and some of the sectors that are gonna be part of this rise to rest. And finally, just from investors, there's obviously a lot of investors in the room. We have, you know, Revolution has invested in a lot of different, different companies. There's a valuation arbitrage. Since all the best investors are, not all, but most investors are focusing on entrepreneurs they can drive to, not entrepreneurs they fly to, the valuations in Silicon Valley tend to be higher, the valuations in rise of rest cities tend to be lower, uh, and there's a, that arbitrage. But when the companies are successful, Chewy just bought, uh, acquired for $3 billion in the largest e-commerce exits. They happen to be in Fort Lauderdale. It's really hard for them to raise capital. The early rounds were priced at a lower valuation. Exact Target also acquired for $3 billion by Salesforce in Indianapolis. Really hard to get going, but once they broke through, whether you go public or get sold, uh, it, it, it gets fully valued. So there's this arbitrage from investors. So part of it is, I think, a I think the right thing to do, leveling the playing field so everybody everywhere really does have a shot at the American dream, but it's also going to be more important to do in the third wave when you shift from it just being about software and apps to really being about systems integration and partnerships and policy and some other aspects. And it's a great opportunity for investors you know, to capitalize on this arbitrage. So that's the reason the rise of the rest is, is so important. And, and how are you, how are you, you're encouraging this rise of the rest by doing a bus tour? Well, it's a bunch that you've been doing for a couple, yeah, a bunch couple of years things. now, right? Yeah, we started three years ago in Detroit, uh, which it's worth remembering that, that 75 years ago, Detroit was sort of Silicon Valley. It yeah. was the most innovative city in the country. 75 years ago, by the way, Silicon Valley was fruit orchards. Yeah. Or nothing. Uh, and so these things tend to kind of, kind of rise and fall. So we started in Detroit, then we went to Pittsburgh, kind of powered the, the whole industrial revolution. And because of Carnegie Mellon, there's a lot of interesting things happening there. Google has a big force there. Uber, a lot of their driverless car operations are, are there. Then we went to Nashville, which is a you know, great city around uh, health tech. And Cincinnati, because of P&G, a lot of things around consumer products. So that was our first two or three years ago. Now we've done 26 cities, 6,000 miles. And it's, it's things like Atlanta and New Orleans and Richmond and Madison and Minneapolis and Phoenix and 
Albuquerque and, and you know, all kinds of different cities, e each have their own story. And what we're trying to do when we're there is create more of this network effect that is so powerful in Silicon Valley, where people really are you know, kind of connected in, in, in pretty important ways. This, you know, the entrepreneurs with the big companies, with the universities, with the mayors, with the, you know, kind of that, create that network uh, effect and get people kind of celebrating entrepreneurship, investing in entrepreneurs, mentoring entrepreneurs, you know, being customers of, uh, of, of entrepreneurs, partnering with, with entrepreneurs in their region, but also shine a spotlight on what's happening in these places to attract more media attention and attract more investor attention. And you know, the hope is, and we're starting to see you know, a little bit of signs of this, that you know, hope that it will be a little easier for entrepreneurs in these rise of the rest cities to start or scale their, their companies, which is not to say that Silicon Valley won't continue to be super strong. It will continue to be the leader of the pack. There's all, all kinds of network effects there in terms of talent and capital and fearlessness and so forth that will, will continue. But we have to take some of those ideas, some of that secret sauce to other parts of the, of the country to create a more evenly dispersed innovation economy so more people do feel you know kind of part of the future don't feel you're left behind and you're creating jobs and hope and really opportunity in in all across the country not just on the on the coast so you've used this term the third wave a couple of times i'm can't decide if you're plugging your book of the same name yes i am plugging the book the paperback just came out two weeks ago if you'd like to buy it <laughs> I, I actually, I think you send it to me for free. I, I do, I, I do. You, you're, you're on a, our, our special list. But what is it? What is the, what is, well, what do you it, mean by the it third goes back wave? To, it goes back to some of the, you know, the originals. When we, when we, as I said, when we got started, the first wave of the internet was just getting everybody online and building the, the software and the servers, the on-ramps, if you will, educating people. I mean, again, it's again, And you hard. did that in, in Virginia. Yeah, outside. And the first wave was, was regionally dispersed. Very interesting point. The first wave of the internet, when we went from essentially in the mid 80s, nobody knowing about it or caring about it, and actually in the mid 80s, it was illegal for consumers or businesses to connect to the internet. Yeah, because it was still it was restricted. A military... to, you know, educational institutions, you're on a university, you could use it, government agencies, you could use it, but consumers or businesses couldn't use it until the Telecom Act passed in 1992. So that was the first wave, is getting everybody online. That was regionally distributed. You know, we happened to be in the D.C. area. Hayes, the major modem company, happened to be in Atlanta. Dell was in Austin. You know, uh, Microsoft started actually in Albuquerque, then moved to, uh, to Seattle. IBM was based in Armonk, New York, but their PC operations were based in Boca Raton, Boca, yeah. you know, you know, Florida. So the, the some of the key players in that first wave of the internet that helped stand up the internet were all over the country. It was the second wave when it became just about software that things really centralized, particularly in, in, in Silicon Valley. I think the third wave will distribute again uh, because of the sectors that are up for grabs and some of the dynamics around domain expertise and partnerships that will become more important in the third wave when it, than it was in the second wave. So uh, you have this acronym you're using or this uh, uh, this this list of things, I think it's called Restart, right. and that's in your new edition of right. your book. I, I'm not trying to sell this book, really. Come but you could, what is you this, what do you bit. mean by Restart? It, it was a it was a reflection. You know, when the book came out of the hardback about a year ago, I got a lot of feedback, and 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 so it made a bunch of changes. It was printed and then, on paper. Printed on paper, but also available digitally. This thing <laughs> really? called Kindle. Have you heard of the Kindle? Uh, uh, and and uh, and but also post the election, you know, you know, kind of reflecting on this, I think it was a little bit of a wake up call for the for the country, and a lot of people were surprised. Uh, and so it was sort of an agenda around things that I think are going to be important if we're going to remain the most 
innovative entrepreneurial nation. We need to reform the way Washington works with startups. And that's the R. They're, 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 that's, that's the R. We, we need to figure out ways to essentially rethink our education you know, system, you know, encourage more creativity, basically teach things to do the things that machines can't do, increase more focus on entrepreneurship, uh, things like that. We need to have, encourage big companies to source you know, kind of uh, products and services from small companies, particularly in these rise of the rest cities. We need to figure out what the right investment incentives are as this whole tax reform debate heats up over the next year. How do we make sure we have the right incentives to, to invest in the startups that are going to create the jobs? The very interesting data, on, and we don't, you know, we're, we're all close to this because we're focused on our particular you know, company, but if you, you take a, a step back, that essentially the last three decades, all job creation, all net job creation in the country has come from startups. Not from small businesses, not from big businesses. The small businesses, the main street restaurants, dry cleaners, are very important and aggregate do account for a lot of jobs, but they tend to churn. A restaurant goes under, uh, out of business, a new restaurant kind of pulls into place. So there's not a lot of net jobs. Same with big companies, the Fortune 500. Some are rising, some are falling, but as a sector, it's, it's kind of neutral. So the place to focus, you want to create jobs, is around these young, high-growth startups. So are, what are the incentives around capital gains, for example? There's a legislation that was introduced last year called the Investing in Opportunity Act, bipartisan with Cory Booker and, and Tim Scott, that would create some capital gains incentives to invest in these rise of the rest cities. So there's things to do around you know, kind of you know, you know, taxes, immigration, got talked about yesterday. It's critically important that we take steps to win what is now a global battle for talent. So things like the you know, startup visa are very important. So I, I think I'm optimistic uh, that we can continue to lead as a, as a country and be innovative and entrepreneurial. But I, I think there is a real risk that we kind of lose our edge, lose our, lose our way. And, and I remind people, uh, you know, who, who particularly down the street from you and I in, in, in D.C., that it's, it is worth remembering that 250 years ago, America itself was a startup. It was just an idea, and frankly, a pretty fragile idea. The reason now we're the leader of the free world is because we have the leading economy, and that wasn't an accident. That was the work of entrepreneurs well, first in the nuclear agriculture. Nuclear weapons are part of it. Well, there's some, you, yeah, you, now you're bringing your State Department, you know, cred. But, but the, the, we led the way in the agriculture revolution. We led the way in the industrial revolution. We led the way in the digital revolution. That's why I went from this tiny little startup nation to the leader of the free world. Well, you know what? Everybody's figured that out. That's sort of the secret sauce that's powered the American story. And they're trying to figure out how do they attract capital? How do they attract talent? How do they, they invest more in, in basic research? So just as we've seen in the last half century or so, the globalization of finance, you know, capital spreading globally, the globalization of manufacturing and some of the implications of that. Now we're seeing the globalization of entrepreneurship. So we need to make sure we're doing everything we can to make sure we continue to lead. I don't believe that's going to happen if we're only investing in a few people in a few places. And beyond the rise of the rest, this regional entrepreneurship, the 75% going to three states, there are other data points here that are troubling. Last year, 90% of venture capital went to men, just 10% to women. Last year, 1%, less than 1%, went to African-Americans. So it does matter where you live, what you look like, who you know, what school you went to, uh, what networks you're, you're part of. That is a big determinant in terms of you know, success. So how do you make sure everybody who has an idea has an opportunity to take that idea and turn it into a business that, that can create a, a job. So I think it's, it's critically important that we not get complacent. I mentioned Detroit earlier. The positive is 75 years ago, it was Silicon Valley. The negative is in the last 50 years, Detroit lost 60% of its population and went bankrupt. 
Yeah. It's complicated, but at the core, it lost its entrepreneurial mojo. Now it's fighting its way back. We backed the company in Detroit called Shinola. It's doing really well. A lot of things. Dan Gilbert, an entrepreneur, is doing a bunch of interesting things. The mayor is doing a bunch of interesting things. So I was just there a couple of weeks ago. There's a real sense of hope and possibility back, particularly in the downtown Detroit area. But it lost its way. Yeah. It, it went from the leader to the laggard. And you know, we need to make sure we don't lose our way as a country. And that's only going to happen, in my opinion, if we, while continuing to celebrate Silicon Valley, I know most folks here are from Silicon Valley, so there's nothing negative about Silicon Valley, but while we continue to do that, how do we also kind of spread the love, spread the attention, spread the capital uh, to these other places. And there are some encouraging signs in some of these cities I visited where the, the brain drain that's happened in many of these cities over the past you know, several decades is slowing. Uh, people are graduating now from you know, Carnegie Mellon, or some are staying in Pittsburgh, from Arizona State, some are staying in, in, in Phoenix, so you're seeing a little bit of a slowing of the brain drain, and you're starting to see the very beginnings of a boomerang of, of talent. A guy who just joined uh, Revolution a couple of months ago, J.D. Vance, wrote the book Hillbilly Elegy. Some of you may have read it. It's a huge bestseller, sold a million copies over the last year. More copies it, than your book? Oh, way more copies than my book. I'm a little mad about that. Uh, but you know, the J.D. basically was a venture capitalist working for Peter Thiel in Silicon Valley, and and a couple of months ago, decided to, you know, kind of pull up his, you know, kind of pull up his uh, roots there and move back home to Ohio to be part of the Rise of Rest. And he's, you know, helping us lead the way in terms of this next evolution of the Rise of Rest. I'm hearing many of those stories around the, you know, the country. And obviously, talent is critically important, and you know, capital follows, you know, talent. So I think there is an opportunity for this. I know there's an opportunity for this kind of Rise of the Rest to accelerate. And again, the, some of the stories in some of these cities. It's, it's remarkable that, that I mentioned some of the things around uh, you know, Pittsburgh, uh, Nashville, because of their history around healthcare. There's a lot of interesting things happening. The most successful health IT company uh, in the country is Epic Systems in Madison, Wisconsin. They really are the leader in electronic uh, you know, medical records. Baltimore, because of Under Armour being based there and doing a lot of things in health tech. John Hopkins being based there, great innovation there. St. Louis becomes Monsanto's headquarters there. They have a couple thousand engineers who understand farming, understand ag tech. A lot of interesting things are, are, are happening there. But, New Orleans, because they had to reinvent their school system post-Katrina, a lot of things in ed tech are happening there. So stuff is happening. It's just most people, even at this conference yesterday, I was talking to people, like, really? Like, they're like real startups in, in, in some of these places. And just this week, two, two final examples, Chicago, we invest in a company called Uptake that CNBC said was the number five disruptive company in the, in the country. Started three years ago, has nearly 1,000 employees, including nearly 100 data scientists three years later. Just this week, a company called Outcome Health in Chicago raised capital of $5 billion valuation. So this is, this is happening. We're just trying to educate people. And the bus tour is part of it. Talking about it is part of it. Writing the book is talk, you know, part of it. You know, how do we get more people paying attention to the entrepreneurs in these other places? backing them uh, so that they can be successful and, and, and in the process also, as I mentioned, you know, create great investment returns for investors and create jobs right. in these communities. I have to interrupt you. I've been doing it a long time, but I let you talk a lot and it was fascinating. But there's something huge happening in the country. You alluded to it a minute ago, which is we have a, a, an inward looking nationalist president uh, and administration. I mean, he's very open about it. He ran on that. It's not a secret. Um, and uh, he thinks he can fight globalization by sort of ignoring it and right. ignoring international agreements. He also ha has a view of business that's, uh, you know, there's nothing 
illegitimate about the real estate development industry, but it's a different sort of thing. Right. Um, do you talk to anybody in the Trump White House about this stuff? Or do you have an opinion about whether they're good for the rise of the rest thing or not? Because well, I, have I haven't mix. heard them talk about any a, of this, except mix. bring back the coal mining jobs, you know, that's a, which right. is a completely different thing than saying, go to West Virginia, where there were coal mining jobs, and uh, let's move West Virginia into the path of these uh, tech-oriented or data-oriented startups with venture capital kind of thing you've talked about. I don't hear any of that from most people. I just hear, let's bring back the jobs from the 19th century or the right. early 20th century. So what's yeah, going I, on? I think, I think that's fair. I, mean, I think it's unfortunate. Hopefully it will change. Uh, but I think the, you know, the focus of, of the President Trump and, a, and his team is, seems to be turning back the clock as opposed to kind of kind of moving forward. I do believe once they focus on it and fully understand the issues uh, that they'll be supportive of the rise of rest because that is part of the reason why he got elected. How do you get more capital? I, I think he will be supportive as part of this tax reform of things like the investing in an opportunity act, but it has not really gotten on the on, on the wavelength. I, have you I, tried? Have you talked to them? I, we talked to them, yes, and uh, I've not talked directly to the president since he became president. Uh, I, I do know him from previous uh, iterations. I, I did write an op-ed in the Washington Post uh, a month before the election uh, supporting Hillary Clinton, which is the only time I've moved from being nonpartisan, independent, to taking a political view, because I was quite concerned about some of his rhetoric around immigration, quite concerned with a lack of specificity around his, his uh, tech uh, tech policies to the fact that I came out in support of her probably doesn't make me the first guy to get invited to a state dinner. But I have had some conversations with some of the, you know, the folks on his, on his team. I think they're an awareness of uh, both the challenge, but also the opportunity. So I'm optimistic, even though some of the things that they're doing are, are continue to be troubling, including what apparently he'll announce around the Paris uh, Accords uh, this afternoon, if, if that's the direction he, he goes in. I think there's reason to be concerned and, and troubled. But on the issue of uh, the rise to rest and supporting the creation and scaling of more startups in more parts of the country and, and trying to deal with this dynamic where a lot of people feel feel left out, left behind, uh, I think they will end up uh, being, being supportive. And I would expect some of that would get baked into this tax reform uh, discussion over the coming months. I'm less optimistic than you, but we'll see. Um, well, see, entrepreneurs are always optimistic. I know. I know. I've always been always skeptical and cynical. So that's the <laughs> But soon you'll be not a journalist anymore. Yeah, I know. You can join me in being optimistic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this have been many, you know, I told some stories last night, I mean, about some people I've had a lot of talks with. I'm, he's one of these guys. We've spent a lot of time talking over the years. I can't let you, let you go or go to questions from the audience without asking you uh, just one thing that's not about the rise of the rest and, 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 the, and the restart stuff and all of that, which is, so 15 years ago, you came here. You were very, I have to say, you were very gutsy because you had you just gone through the AOL Time Warner merger kind of debacle thing, and you came and you talked about it, and, and uh, it was impressive, I have to say. Um, so um, you... Do I have to talk about it again? I'll be like post-traumatic stress. No, we're not going to do that. But <laughs> what I do want you to just reflect on for a minute is it's 15 years... Um, what has surprised you, though? I mean, could you have imagined Twitter, Facebook, all this stuff going on on the Internet? I mean, some of the roots of some of that were in AOL. You used to have those chat right. rooms and all that. But just the, 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 the fact that it's in so much of our lives, every minute, all day, every 
age group everywhere, not just here, but all over the world. Is, is there any of that well, so, sort of, do you ever sit yes, back and say it's amazing? Yes and no. No, I do sit back and say it's amazing. At the same time, when I was, and even the book, the title of The Third Wave, I actually borrowed from Alvin Toffler, who wrote a book in 1980 called The Third Wave. I was senior in college. I read that book, and he talked about, essentially, the internet future. Borrowed it future. by using the same title? Stole it. But, <laughs> you know, but thankfully, Alvin, before he passed away, sadly, recently kind of read it and provided a blurb. And so and it, we've gotten to be you know, kind of friends over, over the years. But for me, that was a, a really catalyzing moment because he was talking about this this kind of this 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 future, uh, and that was again 1980s, so what 37 years ago, something like that. Uh, and so even when we got started with AOL, as you know, because of our you know, mission statement on on the wall, which at the time when we only had tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of of, of, of users, that someday this would be more valuable than the you know the the television or other kind of you know technologies and more pervasive most people looked at us like well, what are you talking about and you know it was hard to raise capital in those early days and i should say our 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 story together goes back now 25 years when walt wrote a column in the wall street journal when we were still struggling and still pretty pretty early i think we had maybe 200,000 customers, uh, and Prodigy backed by IBM and Sears with a billion dollars, and you know, CompuServe with Microsoft coming and other things. He basically wrote a column, you know, basically put uh, America Online on the map and AOL on the map and said, you know, this is easier to use, more useful, more fun, more affordable you know, service. So I always believed in the idea of the internet, even though we had some dark days where it didn't look like we'd survive. Uh, I always believed that community, social media would be the core. As you know, that was the heart and soul of, of what we were trying to do with chat rooms and instant messaging and, and other things. We really believe people was the killer app of the internet. We called it community. Now it's called social, but it's essentially the same idea. So Facebook and Twitter, things like that don't completely surprise me, but the ubiquity of it and how it's now starting to integrate into other industries and that will, as I said, accelerate in, in the third wave and how we went from that early days where nobody cared about it and, and you know, to now you can't really live without it and the pervasiveness of that you know, not just in this country but you know globally has has surprised me okay questions over here hey uh steve luther loaf uh vice president of public policy for yelp um if you go back uh almost 20 years uh, uh or next year is the anniversary of doj versus microsoft a case that you were involved in uh, you talk to folks today. A little bit. Yeah, you talk to folks today uh, on either side of that issue, and though the narrative in Silicon Valley, I think, by a lot of folks my age, is that this is, uh, you know, an example of the government coming in too little, too late, and it's sort of remembered as a stalemate that didn't really have an effect on things. If you talk to people on either side of that issue from 20 years ago, many say that. Uh, DOJ versus Microsoft had the effect of sort of putting Microsoft in a straitjacket, oxygenating the markets, and but for that type of uh, enforcement action, there wouldn't have been a Google because Microsoft could have very easily used IE to strangle right. Google in the crib. So I guess my first question is sort of do you buy that frame? And secondly, do you going back to, to Taplin's uh, presentation uh, earlier today, uh, we see a lot of concentration with these big platforms. It, do you see a connection between sort of that concentration, uh, absence of antitrust enforcement, and um, a reduction in innovation and investment? And do you think we're kind of at one of these inflection points where we need some uh, renewed antitrust scrutiny of these big tech pl platforms? 
It's a great question. First of all, as related to Microsoft, uh, I do think it, it slowed some of their efforts. They were a little bit more careful. I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say they were in a straitjacket because they're still pretty aggressive. But you know, they, I think they are a little bit more careful about some of their their moves, and I think that was important. And the other, other going back to these early days of the internet, the other uh, government decision, other than the Telecom Act legalizing access to the internet, which is kind of a big deal, that was pivotal but not fully appreciated, is when a, a judge, Judge Green, now three decades ago, broke up Ma Bell. You know, AT&T was a dominant monopoly phone company. They broke it into regional Bell operating companies that then led to the funding of hundreds of companies and billions and billions of dollars that basically resulted in the cost of communications you know, dropping precipitous. We started at, well, it was $10 an hour to be connected. That's why people I are only on it. Well, you always bitched about a lot of stuff. So how do you, how do you <laughs> figure out ways? And so competition was unleashed in telecommunications, and it became this arms race, and, and huge you know, investments were made that drove down the, you know, the cost of access, drove up the accessibility, and, and first in narrowband, then in, in broadband. So this role of policy is, is critically important, and it's going to be important again. And you said this yesterday when, when Dick was interviewing you. The role of government, and again, I know there's a lot of people just, you know, hate government and like government just stay out of the way and the regulations are stupid and they just slow us down. And obviously the, much of that is true, but you cannot argue, in my opinion, that, you know, that, you know government not going to be involved when the Internet becomes, you know, as central as it has become. And, and when the sectors that are up for grabs like healthcare, of course, there are going to be some regulations around drug safety. Uh, when we think about you know, new transportation systems, of course there's going to be some regulations about drones in the sky and driverless cars on the, on the road. When we talk about you know, food, of course there are going to be some rules of the road around kind of, you know, food safety. So we are moving from that second wave software app economy uh, to this third wave where the role of government is going to become more important. And the only way we're going to get the right answer is if we have people in this room Understanding that, respecting that, appreciating that, and engaging on, on these issues so we kind of strike the, the right balance and whether it be net neutrality or some of the issues you're talking about with, uh, with, with, with concentration are dealt with in the right way. The only thing, I, and I think, I think their government will need to step in, as, as you said uh, last night. At the same time, I am reminded that competition, if unleashed, does change the game. There was a cover story of Fortune magazine now probably 20 years ago with a picture of me and a picture of Bill Gates. And the headline was something like, who will own the internet or control the internet or something like that? The answer, none of the above. That new you know, entrants, Google and, and, and Facebook and, and a rejuvenated Apple, because back then they were struggling and you know, barely, you know, barely alive, and Amazon, which was pretty tiny back then. And, you know, I mean, you know, that, that if you enable that competition, you level the playing field so everybody ha has a shot, things happen. And, and so I think that is the, creating the marketplace conditions for innovation to, to flourish everywhere, not just in, in a few places, as I mentioned, is, the, is I think the most important you know, way to do it. But we all have to engage and understand the importance of, uh, of policy, not have our head in the sand, not have this kind of hyper-libertarian, you know, just go away you know, view, because that's not going to get us to the right answer. Who's that at the microphone there? Hello. Is, you got, is that Rockstar there? Yeah, with the it Rockstar is. Glass? This, is a, this is a woman who's made some money <laughs> writing about uh, She made writing a career books. writing books on AOL. Yeah, yeah. And that's how you discovered her, and then now she's like... Ah, jeez. Got, what that is, you're, you I, are, you and AOL are responsible for swishing. And I'm deeply apologetic to all of you for that. <laughs> all right. 
are one of my done? great regrets of my. Are we done with the man crosstalk? Okay. Apparently. Apparently. Evidently. Ms. So Fisher. I never want to miss an opportunity to heckle you, Steve Case, because you deserve it in, in its entirety. And the only thing we've Can agreed on. Can you turn on, off our microphone, please? And, and, <laughs> We're on I, our bought, stage I bought here. this microphone, as Ronald Reagan said. Um, and I, I, I don't agree on almost anything you have to say most of the time, except that we both love Walt Mossberg. Um, but one of the things I think is important we've tried to do here is create substantive discussions around things, um, whether you agree or not or disagree. So I'd love to know, Steve, from you, because we've talked a lot. You've been on the podcast talking about rise, the rest and other things. What are, the su- what are like three substantive things people can do? And, I, and that's beyond taking a tour of the Midwest and meeting the, the quaint people of Kentucky, you know, that, which I think don't is a little call bit. Them into, the quaint people of Kentucky. No, I don't. I don't. That's the whole point. You Silicon Valley types. I agree. That led to I, Donald Trump. You know what? Ms. Swisher. I, I listen. I would like the quaint people of Kentucky to come to the Castro. I'll show them the naked man and all the things we do. All here. right. Now we're I'm really, happy. now really turn off our mic. Yeah, exactly. I think we should do both things, but give me three. I, I don't like those trips. I think they're kind of, it feels like arrogant. So what are the three things Give me three substantive things people can do besides, you know, this idea of visiting and understanding. Like, what are three substantive things? That's what I would like to. Well, do. first of all, I disagree with you on the visit. I think I think and Lorraine said this last night. You do get a sense of what's happening, talking to people, and actually seeing things firsthand, not reading about it or guessing what people might be thinking. So, thank you. So, I, yeah, I think the first one, even though you might disagree with it, is. Get, get in the game. Understand what's, what's, what's happening. Pick a few cities that, you know, maybe you're from as one of you. I mean, most of you who happen to be in Silicon Valley are not from Silicon Valley. Maybe you should I know where and, she's from, and it's one of those places. And, and spend more time there. Understand what's happening there, number one. Number two is figure out how you can be helpful there. How maybe you can be a, a mentor. Maybe you could be an investor. Maybe you could be a customer. Maybe you could be a partner. Maybe you know somebody who could be really helpful to, to a company there. So engage. Be part of that network. And, and obviously, you can do that remotely through crowdfunding and other things. It gives you the ability to do that in a way that's much more, uh, more important. And three is tell their stories. You know, in, in next year, invite you know, a bunch of you know, the entrepreneurs from these Rise of the Rest cities to, to be on the stage and talk about what's happening there, showcase you know, what's, what's All happening right. there. We did actually do a series in, in Recode uh, on Innovation Nation of Cities that are And that was terrific. And do more of that kind of thing. So, and again, it's, not, it's important not to view this just through the context of it's something we should do because there's a problem out there and there's this disconnect out there and just people feeling disenfranchised and disconnected out there. Calm them down. And if we don't do that, we're gonna, you know, Silicon Valley will kind of become more and more the next bad guy, kind of like Wall Street. You know, that it, it's sort of, I'm not saying do it just for those defensive reasons or those do-gooder reasons. I'm saying do it because they're great entrepreneurs building great companies there, uh, and they're great investment opportunities there. So it's, it, that's a reason to do it. And the valuations are lower there, so there's going to be you know, people are going to be surprised by the the opportunity in, in those places. So those are some just just engaging and trying to better understand what's happening there. If you have the ability to invest, invest. Even if you don't have the ability to invest, try to figure out some way to connect, some way to you know to, to mentor, some way to you know to, to partner with some of those rise the rest companies. Great. Last question. Uh, Steve Patrick, Patrick Ward. Ward. Yeah, 104 West Partners. So I live in one of the rise of the rest cities. I live in Denver. I've lived there for 15 okay. years, having spent eight or more years in Silicon Valley. And um, 
Denver's a great city. It's the most popular city in the country. More people are moving there than any place else. Wonderful uh, quality of life, et cetera. You started a company there, Exclusive Resorts, spawned another company in Sperado. They've got hundreds of employees. Wonderful. I saw a stat on the slide that said there was something like $297 million in venture capital invested in Denver. That's like five, seven Series A companies in the Valley, right? Right. So how do you get capital there? So Wahini Ovara just wrote a story this week in Wired, a harrowing story about a guy trying to raise capital in, in Denver. Um, and it, it's extremely hard. He had to go to South Dakota. You, it's not, you're nodding your head, right. so I think you read the story. Um, how do you get capital, how do you get venture capitalists to stop wanting to sleep in their own beds and get on a plane instead of a car, and get on a in plane instead of a car, as you said? How do you specifically do that thing? Because it seems to me there that the, the capital is the real, is the I real agree, linchpin. I agree. It's not just about the money, but it's the money, the capital aspect's very, very important. So first of all, I say when we started AOL, none of our capital came from D.C. There were no venture capitalists in D.C. at the time. We got it from you know Chicago and Boston and Toronto and San Francisco and so forth. So I saw that you know firsthand. Now it's you know not just Revolution, other firms there. You know there, there's much more more capital there. But I, I kind of lived through that the journey. Number one is make sure crowdfunding works. The Congress passed something called the Jobs Act five years ago that legalized the use of the internet to raise money updating securities laws that had previously been passed in 1933, so they hadn't changed in 80 years, you know, pre-television, pre-internet, you know, the, the securities laws were the same. But the SEC took four years to write rules. They're 800 pages, they're onerous, so it's still difficult for companies to use that. The crowdfunding sites like Kickstarter and Indiegogo for projects, when you're pre-buying a product or something, are, are flourishing, have created thousands of companies, billions of dollars of capital, but we still have work to do on the equity debt, you know, crowdfunding you know, side to make sure while you keep the bad things from happening, you're also enabling good things to happen. Crowdfunding, number one. Number two is educating investors, which is part of the reason I'm here, about the opportunities there. So they do start paying attention. They do start following what's happening in these cities. They do start understanding that some of the sector expertise, whether it be ag tech or fintech or what have you, isn't necessarily all going to be in Silicon Valley or New York or Boston, but in different parts of the, uh, the country. And three is to unleash what's now a, a growing uh, kind of wave of these micro VC regional funds. There's now a couple dozen, soon to be a couple hundred, funds are 20, 30, 40 million dollars that are making so seed and some, you know, some parts of the, you know, being parts of syndicates for Series A investments, which are critically important to people on the ground in those cities to provide that initial capital. And then when they start scaling, investors from the, the coast can kind of come into it. So you got to make sure crowdfunding works. You got to make sure you're educating investors about the opportunities there. Again, not the obligation, uh, but the opportunities just to generate you know, better returns because of the valuation arbitrage and figuring out a way to create a network of these regional micro VC funds and make it easier for institutions to, to, to back them. And there's a bunch of different ideas that are being you know, kicked around there. I think that will kind of unleash the capital that, uh, that, is, that is necessary. A good example in Denver is what's happening with, with Foundry and Boulder. Started really small. Now they've started to expand, but there need to be more foundries in Denver and more foundries in other rise or rest cities. Yeah, they, they don't invest that much in, in Denver. And I also think one other thing that's worth considering is, and this is specific to our region, these companies rarely get beyond 75, 100 people, 50, 70 million dollars in revenue, and they get bought up. And so, and what happens is somebody will come in, or Google will come in, uh, Twitter will come in and buy, and buy Ganip. They'll come in, they'll buy Ganip, there'll be 75 employees there, they'll whittle that down to 20, 
The 55 go out, pollinate, and they start other stuff. But there's never a place where you're getting 250, 300,000 person companies that really start to pollinate. I agree. So, so a couple ideas there. One is there are some exceptions to that. And I mentioned Under Armour in Baltimore is a good example. It's got you know, thousands of employees now, and it's really started to you know, transform Baltimore. Part of what Dan Gilbert's doing in Detroit is because of the success of Quicken Loans. Thousands of employees moved from the suburbs downtown, bought a bunch of buildings downtown, invested in a bunch of startups downtown. Suddenly, the downtown area is, is starting to, uh, to flourish. But also, the model, as, as you all know, of, of M&A has is, is shifted a lot from the model where if Microsoft bought your company 20 years ago, you had to move to Seattle, and now it's much more, we're buying you because there's something interesting happening there. How do we keep that team engaged? How do we keep the momentum building? So when Salesforce bought Exact Target, they had less than 1,000 employees. Now they have nearly 2,000 employees. And while Mark is building the largest building in, in San Francisco, the Salesforce Tower, he's also building the largest building in, in Indianapolis, the Salesforce Tower there. So there are examples of how this is now starting to, to spread. And as people see in these cities, there's, there's opportunity. They start you know, moving back this boomerang effect. As you say, there's some successes that spawn other, other, other companies. You create that momentum, then there's more capital, and some of the people you know, start you know, investing in the next generation of companies, and more people pay attention to what's happening there, which then accelerates the talent, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You hit that kind of network, in fact, increasing return. I think that's what will happen over the next 10, 15, 20 years. But rather than just sit on the sidelines wondering, yeah, you know, how do we engage? And it goes back to the original point about you know, the internet. The, to me, the, the, my passion about this is the same passion I had with the internet. That was about leveling the playing field in terms of access to information, to education. Remember, back then, there were very few ways to get information. If you, you kind of had to go to a school or had to go to a library to you know, get information. How do you level that playing field in terms of information? Now it's just leveling the playing field in terms of opportunity so that you really give people that, 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 that shot and, and this idea that, that their ideas, creativity are broadly distributed you know, opportunity is not, and some of that is, is relates to, to capital. So how do we all do a better job of making sure the people with those ideas can start in these places and can scale in these places and can stay in these places and can have this transformative effect in their cities, which I think will result in a more connected country that with fewer of these kind of have-have-not divides and also will hedge what I think is a pretty significant risk of Silicon Valley emerging as the new bad guy in terms of the you know, popular kind of perception of it, and it'll have all kinds of different implications. But at the core, it's a great opportunity. So I'm doing it because I, I believe in it, I'm passionate about it, I want to, you know, but I'm also doing it because I think we'll make money as investors investing in these entrepreneurs in these cities. So join us. It's good. Thank we you. couldn't tell the passion, by the way. Thank you, Steve. Thanks for listening to Recode Replay. 